You're listening to the fourth season of Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship and how it can transform your everyday life. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in the field of liturgical worship. For our fourth season, Father Jeffrey and I decided to publicly publish a series of episodes which have hitherto been reserved exclusively for the patrons of this show. We'll be publishing them here exactly as they were heard by our patrons. Father Jeffrey and I release special private episodes for our patrons on a weekly basis, so if you like what you hear and you'd like access to much, much more, you can go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to become a patron. But for now, we hope you enjoy the public release of this episode. New Year, patrons. I think it's going to be the New Year by the time we re- by the time we release this, Father Jeffrey. Well, Happy New Year to you. I'm I'm glad we got through that one. Um, it yep. was quite a ride, 2020. <laughs> Downs. Um, I in the plus side, I did not get sick a single time. Now you're saying that, but you've got a couple of weeks left to go before the new actual New Year. So yeah. I by hope the time you're touching this comes wood. Out, by, the, by the time this, by the, by the time this comes out, my funeral will have been served because I'm bad from COVID. I'll assure all podcast listeners: I visited him in hospital. <laughs> I gave him his last rites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, but seriously, like because everything's been so locked down, and I've been wearing a mask, like I haven't gotten COVID, but I also haven't gotten anything else yeah there is that <laughs> uh and and i'm and i'm i talked to my sister-in-law who's a doctor and she said uh because i was like a little worried i'm like should i actually still be exposing myself to things for for the sake of my immune system right like should i be um like weightlifting if you stop lifting weights your muscles die well if you stop experience if you stop interacting with pathogens does your immune system die basically was my question and she said well that's true if you're young Right. right. If if you're like within like five, ten years of birth. Okay. That is that is true. You need to be exposed to stuff to, so that your body learns. But after that, you're gonna be pretty much the same if yeah. it's not if it's not like years and years and years. You've probably before. met most things by that point, I imagine. Yeah, that was her that was her yeah. take on it. Okay, so, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh well, the first five to ten doctor. years are important. Yes, yeah. So if you have <laughs> a child within the first five or ten years, you better expose them to yeah. like dirt. Yeah. Um, anyways, pies. this is speaking of children. Oh, mm. that was a good segue. Yeah, and what you did um, with the, them in their first five to ten years of life. Exactly. Expose <laughs> them to pathogens. <laughs> right. uh, okay. I have so so. I grew up in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Canada, and in the Ukrainian tradition, at this point in church history, the 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 practice is, and and the way that I grew up understanding baptism was that, that baptism was something that saves you, which mm-hmm. means that, and, and it, that primarily means that it stops you from going to hell, and that baptism, uh, th- therefore, baptism should be done as soon as possible after birth. Um, uh, but at the same time, I also grew up with the understanding that unbaptized babies don't go to hell. Uh, so th- there's a bit of a tension there. Um, so I presented, I guess just now I presented how I grew up understanding 
what baptism was in in my own Ukrainian Orthodox tradition. Uh, do you want to maybe talk to uh, 12-year-old Yuri and uh, clarify some of those points? Well, I, I would like to hear a bit more from 12-year-old Yuri about what he thinks the rush to baptize is about if unbaptized babies aren't consigned to hell necessarily. I, mean, would, I think yeah. I think that there is still some fear about that. Just right? in case? Yeah, there is <laughs> a huge amount of just in case. And you just, you want to get it done. Just in case, right? What if you die all of a sudden? Um, and there's also the desire to, um, like if a child's sick and is possibly going to die, you want to baptize them right away. Um, and and the the, yes, the rhetoric was unbaptized babies don't go to hell. But at the same time, there the the practice almost said the opposite. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I don't think Ukrainian Orthodox um, are, are altogether different from most other Orthodox traditions today on on that question. Although it, they very very well may be the doorway through some of which this came, in insofar as you know, Ukraine was this in a place where currents of East and West met, right? Where you had, mm -hmm. um, you know, large parts of Ukraine being in the, you know, Austro-Hungarian, Polish kind of orbit and uh, empire and so forth. And famously, of course, there's sections of the Ukrainian church that actually were brought into communion with Rome through that process. So that's where you get the Eastern Rite or Uniate um, Christians and so forth. So today, Ukrainian Catholics you know, who ritually um, and to a large extent theologically are orthodox in their, you know, uh, kind of outlook, but are under, the, in, in, in the sphere of the communion of, of, of the Western church. And so uh, there, that, Ukraine tended to be a place where currents ran in both directions, you know, so Eastern things affected uh, Western Christians and Western things affected Eastern Christians. And so, you know, the, you just have to look at the history of the last few hundred years to see an awful lot, even liturgically and liturgical and sacramental practices would have been influenced, you know, in that kind of crucible of, uh, of interchange and, and so forth. I mean, one of the things that, um, if we can go outside of the baptism question for just a moment, that we see emerging in this time is the whole idea of private prayer books, for example, you know, until a few hundred years ago, Orthodox, if you were at home, would have just prayed something like the Liturgy of the Hours that was done in, in, in church, right? So maybe not the entire thing and certainly not all of the services. Um, but you, you know, when you prayed, you prayed at home the way you did um, in, in church. But from Western tradition emerged these kind of little private prayer books. And so today they're ubiquitous in, in Orthodoxy. One of the first things you get given if you become Orthodox is a prayer book, right? And, um, you know, they've got, they, they all follow a kind of common style of or format where you've got morning and evening prayers and then occasional prayers during the day, a few extra kind of prayer services, things to do as you're preparing for confession or prefer, preparing for communion. All of that as a model, as a form, came from, you know, Western tradition. So we know there's an, 
enormous amount of of interchange and influence and, and and so forth and you know lots and lots of little things you know come up we we bless icons by the way because the western church you know had a, a kind of process of of blessing uh, art for for church use even though our theology specifically says at the time of the seventh ecumenical council the fight against iconoclasm icons are blessed by by what they depict we don't bless icons there's a proof for why icons are important but under western you know, kind of influence in the last few hundred years. So we've adopted uncritically, is my point here, an awful lot from, you know, kind of Western influence. And clearly, I mean, it's inarguable that from the early centuries, um, you know, and famously, I suppose, St. Augustine uh, himself, there was an expression that uh, we need to fear for what happens with a human being who is born into this world who leaves this world without being baptized, that there is no hope of them being saved. And that's because there's a certain prism of looking at uh, the inherited uh, state or corruption of humanity and one, and a, therefore a view of looking at the way baptism remedies that, that, you know, one says, you know, this is an original kind of sin and guilt that we need to be, have erased, washed away, lest we not be saved. Another says, well, no, we've, we've inherited corruptibility and death, but, you know, it's not absolutely necessary that, um, that the kind of guilt of, of Adam or of our, of our forebears has kind of come to us. And therefore that needs to be washed. The, the conception of original sin or, uh, ancestral sin, as some Orthodox theologians call it, is rather different from that that, that came up in the Western context. So the Western mm -hmm. Middle Ages, absolutely clearly, you had to, you know, the children were being baptized within the first few days of, of birth. You know, you, you wonder why it wasn't even the first few hours in most cases, because, you know, that so imperative was, was that. And it also, I mean, a similar thing is it meant that, you know, mission of the church meant you know, the most important thing to do is to get people baptized, right? Didn't really matter what you did with them after that, you know, but as long as you went out and got subscribers um, and, you know, conscripts to this faith, you got them to the baptismal font. And, and that was that, you know, job done. And now move on to the next one. Whereas mission in the Eastern church was always much more about, you know, catechesis and discipleship. You know, if people wanted, you know, even as adults expressed an interest in baptism, the whole, the tenor of the tradition was make them wait. You know, there's an awful lot you need to know before you kind of come to this. Well, if, if, mm -hmm. if, if it was all about getting people in and getting them baptized because otherwise they were going to hell, then we wouldn't have done that. That wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have all these mystagogical catechesis, these, these sermons and, and teaching tracts from the early church, all about the long preparation we made people go through before they would be baptized. Nor would we have have maybe taken the time that we did with mission, you know, coming, you know, the, if you think about the mission to the Slavs, starting with Cyril and Methodius, it's going to take a thousand years before the Slavs will meet, uh, you know, reach Alaska in the famous missions of the 1700s, 1800s there, you know, because they were moving very deliberately, slowly across the whole continent, you know, one village at a time, spending 20, 30 years bringing people into a kind of incarnated, enculturated uh, form of, of the gospel, all these different people groups, all these different languages, taking the time to translate. You know, in the West, it was 
we're going to use Latin. You know, it's the most convenient thing. Let's just bash everybody over the head with this one way of doing it, get them to the font. Eastern church was far more interested in the whole life, right? And so, yes, baptism is part of it. I'm not meaning to downplay baptism. There is a grace and uh, that comes from baptism, a grace of ultimately being the symbolic death of the of Adam and the birth and resurrection of Christ in in that moment. So we we put off the old man, we put on the new man. But we see that not as a one moment in time magical movement from guilt to innocence, but rather symbolic of the whole life. And so even the way baptism gets described, you know, as the kind of ongoing font and reservoir of our repentance in our spiritual tradition. You know, when we return to 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 confess our sins, we're returning to our bap- baptism. We're returning to the to putting things to death in us that should die in order that Christ all the more can live with us in us. And it's no longer I who live uh, who live but Christ who lives in me, mm-hmm. St. Paul says. So the I mean, all of our thinking, all of our theology, all of our sacramental, liturgical way of looking at the world points in a different direction. You know, and none of this really is specifically to do with infants or children and how quickly you baptize them. But I think it's the context in which our thinking, you know, is framed. And so it shouldn't be surprising that in the early church, uh, yes, infants are baptized. Yes, you know, children are baptized because whole households were baptized. And we have this rather, you know, not quite the same thing as the Reformed tradition, but we have a covenant way of looking at this. The same way you became a covenant member of Israel in the old covenant by certain covenant markers, like for males, circumcision, but for everyone, ritual purity and food laws and so forth, and other forms of identification with the covenant. So it says throughout the New Testament, this is the whole thrust of it, that the you know in Christ, in the new covenant, it's de- declaring Christ as Lord and receiving baptism that is the covenant you know sign of that so when families households would become christians they were received you know in toto they were received as a whole and so that would be elderly people disabled people young you know uh, working people children and just the, the totality of that was what was received into the church but at the same time in the very early church right up until you know fourth century we have examples of saints whose parents were saints, you know, who waited until their late adulthood before they were baptized. So all this is part of one tradition and we need to kind of account for it. And, you know, there's a lot of thinking around that. Confession hadn't really emerged as the as the way back in if you kind of went off the rails after baptism. So there was some postponement for that, but there wasn't the imperative. There wasn't a sense that you know, this is the, the the one thing that you do to kind of move from, you know, in a binary way from zero to one, right? That uh, you were lost, now you're saved in, in this kind of one moment. That there was always this much more holistic view of the Christian life. And baptism is is symbolic and representative of the entire thing. And you want to do that in a way that that is meaningful and dramatic. You know, remember the in the East... Baptism remains by triple immersion, right? It is a genuine descent and ascent. Uh, triple because of the, the Trinity, but you know, the descent and ascent because of Christ's own 
you know, descent in the incarnation and ultimately through the cross and then ascent through the resurrection and ascension. So this God becoming man that man might become God is, is fully represented in, in that moment. So that's kind of wrapping the whole discussion with, you know, what it is in our tradition that might make us not necessarily rush to the font in quite the same way or to kind of absolutize it as a the, the singular moment of salvation somehow because um you know there's so much more to the christian life uh that that it it not that it baptism isn't the entire thing but it baptism encompasses all of that as well and so it's at the heart it's a it's a one once for all thing we don't rebaptize, but uh, it is somehow symbolic of the entirety of the christian life that also needs to be brought into play Yeah, so if I'm picking up what you're laying down in certain aspects of of what you just said, in in the Orthodox ethos, it's more about a holistic um, taking on of the Christian life, and that takes it takes time to be instructed. Right, the catechumens are the the instructed ones. Um, so, I guess my question here would be that it is clear from early centuries and from even our baptism service that the baptism is designed primarily for an adult and somebody who has had time to go through that catechism, that instruction. Why would we then bother baptizing a child at all? If, if, if there really isn't um, this sort of a binary saved, not saved uh, dynamic in the baptism, why not just wait and then bring them and in, let them go through a catechumenate and instruction and then fully initiate them um, at a time where they can, I guess, get what's happening. Right. Well, so the counterbalance to, to that is that we never get it. <laughs> mm. Right. So, I mean, the, the traditions that absolutely insist on what's called believer baptism, right. They mean r rational certainty of belief right right um and i think we had a podcast recently that, that looked at certainty and, and so forth so that's framed usually in the context of you understand and now you subscribe and adhere to this in the same way you might you know agree to a set of legal <laughs> conditions in a document and put your name to it or, or whatever and it's never about that right catechumenate was never about that catechumenate was about you know orienting your whole life body and soul you know heart mind strength everything in your life towards the pattern of christ towards the life of god uh, lived as a human being which means that the path of self-sacrificial love and you know communion and so forth so to get oriented on that is is a holistic process and the catechumenate was not even so much about okay here are all the things to believe you know sign on the dotted line it was do these things right live this way um it's fascinating if you go back and read these early um sermons sermons around catechesis and so forth you know they 
they interrogate the person who's come forward and ask about how they live their life. You know, so so how much almsgiving are you doing? Um, you know, how are you account for your time and what you're doing with your life and 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 what's the orientation of your heart, you know, in all of that. Um and so that's where the the emphasis of catechumenate was, was laid. Never on Oh, so, you know, what level of, you know, graduate uh, theological studies have you got to, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Um, you know, tell us again about what you think about the, uh, you know, the, the divine persons versus the essence and, and so forth. I mean, there are obviously clear fences that are drawn by the creed and that the creed very early on, you know, after it was adopted in Nicaea, then Constantinople in the fourth century became the baptismal emblem, right? Part of being coming a catechumen was that you recited the creed and therefore, you know, were within the fences that it erects, right? Around, around truth. But it's not about, do you understand the inner workings of the Trinity? Now you're ready to be baptized or anything. So there's not a, there's not a, a rational certainty that's being asked for. It's an orientation of heart. And that's what all the catechumen it was about. It was about learning to pray, learning to live the Christian life and and so forth, right? And so once satisfied um, of that, the bishop would enroll you for that most intensive final preparation for baptism that took place. And that's where we got Great Lent. Great Lent emerges as that last you know, uh, furlong of the race towards uh, baptism. After years of preparation, usually you would be enrolled on the first day of Great Lent and then spend that Lent preparing and then you'd be baptized um, at Pascha. And part of the assurance was how you'd lived your life, but it was also that you were being vouched for. That was what the whole witness or sponsor uh, is about, somebody who could could come forward and not necessarily just promise that they'll help look after you and pray for you and maybe buy you a cross for your baptism. But it was, no, I've observed this person and how he or she has been living. And I can say that they're in the right, they're pointed in the right direction, right? And so if you then extrapolate that to saying, so at what age could this happen? You know, conceivably, um, you know, it's not a matter of saying, well, you need to be old enough to rationally articulate anything at all. So I mean, you could take the whole question of people who maybe don't have the mental capacity ever to express a rational belief, you know, but they could still, you know, very much be living a life oriented towards God, oriented towards communion with others and, and self-sacrificial love. In fact, you know, anyone I've met who has maybe limited mental capacities, often is better poised to live that kind of life, you know, maybe more ready than the person who has all these rational, you know, issues to to get over mm-hmm. or whatever. So then you come to the child, right? And then you come to the assessment of children that our Lord makes in the Gospels, where, in fact, he welcomes the children and then tells the rational thinking adults around him that they need to turn and become as children. So let's, so the catechumenate then is about becoming children. Right? It's about making yourself as open and you know willing to love and to trust as a child. 
That's what catechumen is about. So, so the working with a 30-year-old man is harder than a five-year-old child or a three-year-old child who is poised more naturally. I'm not saying, and this is not romanticizing children. Believe me, I've had children. <laughs> There's nothing romantic <laughs> and I'm not nostalgic for, the, for their being really young. But there is nevertheless something that is altogether more giving and trusting in the child's heart mm -hmm. and disposition. Mm -hmm. And it's that that we need to have. And so it's already there. So I'm not surprised that throughout the most of the Byzantine period, um, infants were made catechumens, but the people who, when they were baptized, usually at about age three or four. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, I mean, this would be happening in families that, you know, were hopefully, although you know, to some extent it was cultural, but they were hopefully on the path you know, they were living as you know, a Christian family. They had made the, you know, Jesus Christ the heart of what they did as a family. And so the orientation of the family, the parents, all of the extended family around them, because remember, we're not talking about nuclear families and the family values and everything of, of modernity here. We're talking about, you know, multi-generational open houses where people were in and out. You picking up strays all the time, you know, looking after the poor and so forth. So, but within that mix, children were being brought up and, and pointed in the right direction with all their trustingness and all their generosity of heart, they were being pointed in the right direction. And the second thing, why wait to age three or four, I think has to do with the, the drama of, of baptism, because they too would have gone through this final preparation at Lent. And then on Holy Saturday afternoon, with the great Vesper service, with all of the Old Testament readings that, that point to baptism, and with all of the other to be illumined, they would be, you know, robed and they would be taken to the baptistry. They would be plunged three times into that water and then lifted out, given the robe of light, chrismated, given their first communion. At age three or four, I think for most of us, if you think back, what's the earliest memory you would ever have? And it's probably around that age. And imagine then that every year thereafter, you were watching other people do the same thing that would reinforce that memory that you would have of the drama of the exorcisms and wilderness of Lent being led to Holy Friday and then Saturday. And then that process of going to the baptism font and emerging the new man, the new creation, and being then clothed in all the light of Pascha, every year you would be reminded of your own baptism, the, the very baptism which would be among your first memories at all as a human being. I think there's something quite powerful to be said for that. And why rush under kind of Latin Western influence to baptize on the eighth day or the 40th day, as beautiful, as symbolic as those numbers are. And I, I recognize, you know, Jews, um, you know, circumcise their boys on the eighth day with the naming and so forth. There's lots of history and tradition behind that, and I'm not <laughs> dismissing it. But boy, oh boy, would it be marvelous to have the memory of being baptized as one of your first memories, and you would mm -hmm. therefore every year be brought back to that mystery, which we're asked to be done. You know, the, the services ask us to do that anyway, right? We're we're being asked to recall that in all of the Holy Week and you know Paschal uh, drama of liturgy and so forth, we're asked to enter into that, but to actually have that memory, not and not 
I've forgotten it because you were literally an infant in arms, um, which, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that to say that that's not a real baptism. Absolutely. It's a baptism and it happened, you know, even in the earliest church, but I would love to have that as a memory. I, I mean, that that's a desire of, of my, of my heart to, to, mm-hmm. to kind of be able to enter that much more into Pascha every year. And so that's what happened in the, the middle Byzantine period. And that's a speculation on my part, but it maps onto what we know about, you know, childhood development and, and, and everything. But it was only later that, as I say, under the influence of contact with the West, where there was this much stronger emphasis on the sin that had to be gotten rid of as soon as possible, because without which you went to hell. Now, the very best of Western theologians said, well, it's a nicer part of hell. It's not got all the rest of the sufferings. It's called limbo. <laughs> but you nevertheless went to hell. You know, it was the first level of hell called limbo. And um, and you would want your children not to experience that. So, of course, you're going to baptize them. And so mm-hmm. today, universally, the Orthodox Church follows you know, that practice for, you know, certainly where there's a believing uh, family and so forth. You know, we, I think, would still give some pause to the just cultural baptism request that, that we might get. Although there's a lot of priests who would say, well, why, why would we punish the child, right? You know, we somehow need to get the grace to the child. Although I don't yeah. think our tradition would suggest that that grace is going to do very much in a family that's not practicing anything, right? Yeah. So it may actually be harmful in the sense that that person assumes they're a Christian, whereas not being baptized might force the issue later on when they yeah, think about yeah. it, right? So anyway. Um, what do you, what do you make of the fact that, say, famously Constantine wasn't baptized until a week before his death? Right. This this idea that in certain times of church history, people actually avoided baptism until the end. They, I guess, took the risk, so to speak. Yeah. Well, again, it must suggest that the risk wasn't as dire as you know later Western tradition might have suggested, right? So, I mean, I think weighing all things up, if you knew that not being baptized consigned you to hell, you probably would go and be baptized. The fear, of course, was that before confession had emerged as a, a kind of, not rebaptism because we never rebaptize, but a, a return to your baptism. It's a repentance as a way, as a, I mean, some of the, you know, later commentators call it a second baptism, although Strictly speaking, it's not, but the the tears of repentance are considered to be the the water of of your baptism and so forth. But that hadn't that wasn't there. In the in fact, the, one of the biggest debates in the church in the you know second century is whether it's possible if you've been baptized and you've then gone and sinned, whether it's possible for you to be saved. Right? There's debates about this. Uh, the the thought is that you know you were to remain sinless. Um, now, I think that's pretty much predicated on the kind of more serious side of sin, you know, not the, all the, you know, even unknown and unforeseen sins that we commit just by the fact that we, uh, we live and so forth, which we also repent of. But I mean, in terms of, you know, if you were going to go and do something serious that was going to keep you out of the church, put you in that state of the, of, of penitence and so forth. Well, that, that state of penitence didn't exist until later when the sacrament of confession is developed as a way precisely of reconciling back people who after their baptism had alienated themselves from the church. And we keep that today. You know, we go to confession in the prayer of absolution. It says, reconcile and unite name to thy holy church, right? So 
It's about returning somebody to communion where they've been excommunicated. They've been taken out of God's covenant community by their their actions. Well, the thought was, until about the third, fourth century, when this starts to um, develop around confession, the thought was there was no reconciliation after baptism. So therefore, you might be interested in postponing it, especially if your job meant that you could be doing some pretty uh, unsavory things, hence emperors postponing baptism, right? Because inevitably, if you're a world leader of some sort, you're going to end up sinning. Um, I think that's a pretty, you know, it doesn't need a lot of argument (laughs) to show that. Uh, Down to our own day, you could say, Um, that, you know, to be in that sort of position means to be grievously sinning regularly, and therefore you might well postpone it until, you know, moments before your death, if you could or if you were just a young man, you know, and uh, had yet to sow your wild oats or whatever, um, you might wait until after that had settled down and, and so forth. So, the, you know, typically uh, age 30 was uh, a common time for, for people to, to be baptized. Um, you know, lots of examples of them. Even St. Augustine himself, his mother was a saint, Monica, right? Um, but uh, was baptized, you know, much later in his life after a very wild period of sowing oats. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was thinking that there was no other way into the church than through baptism and no way back if you'd apostatized or sinned grievously uh, meant that some people postponed. um, But it wasn't universally the case. There's still lots of infants being and and children being baptized at the time. But I said, just because your parents were saints didn't even necessarily mean you got baptized very early in your life. Well, that does it for another uh, episode of the Enacting the Kingdom private podcast. This Thank was uh, really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Uh, so patrons, as always, uh, you know, post here, send private messages, whatever you want, if you have something to say. Um, also, if there are any questions, feel free to send questions. We can always do a, a question and response episode as well. Also, upcoming for patrons is the live Q&A session on Zoom with Dr. Gail Wolushjak. So uh, that's going to be really good. So please, if you want to be part of that live discussion where you can actually ask questions directly to her, uh, then please message uh, the Patreon here. Or even if you have my own personal contact you can message that and i'll get you the zoom link closer to the day i think it's going to be a lot of fun uh it's january 13th which is wednesday evening excellent cool okay that's about it everybody we'll talk to you later see you later father jeffrey bye now Well, that does it for another episode of the private podcast of Enacting the Kingdom. Thank you again for all your support. Please feel free to comment with any follow-up thoughts or questions. Father Jeffrey and I read them all. Looking forward to having you back soon.